Welcome to the Allies Podcast. I'm your host, Carmen Farino. Hello, this is Carmen Farino, and welcome to another edition of the Allies Podcast. With me in uh, the studios uh, is Ron Sim. Ron, welcome. Thank you, Carmen. Ron, you've. Uh, I'm going to run down your uh, a short version of your your resume um, because I think it's it's fascinating to me. So you um, right now you're you're president and CEO of Simon Lens, which uh, it seems to me takes some uh, vintage lens lenses and then uh, converts them uh, to to kind of bring to life maybe a, a, a different look uh, in a digital age. Is that fair approximation of, of what that does? Yes, that is correct. Cool. I'm glad I got that right. Um, but you've also been uh, DP. You've been a creative director. Um, you've been a, uh, a freelance uh, video journalist and stringer for Fox, for Reuters, for BBC, for Discovery Channel. Um, but it's all really around telling human stories of capturing the human experience. So I, I want to kind of um, tee this up by going backward. Um, where did you grow up? And can you give me a sense of when you felt like storytelling um, became something you wanted to pursue? I was actually born in a refugee camp along the uh, Thailand and Cambodia border. Um, my parents were uh, slaves during the Pol Pot regime. And during the war in Cambodia, they escaped their uh, their their camp and ran on foot from Cambodia to the border uh, to Thailand. And uh, that's where they had met, and that's where I was born. So for the first six years of my life, I actually grew up and lived in a refugee camp as a stateless citizen. Um, so that's where I started, I guess. And uh, at the age of six, my parents were accepted to come to Canada, and we became immigrants here in Canada, and that's where I grew up. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, which is just across the river from Detroit, Michigan. Hmm. What What do you think it, uh, or how do you think that beginning kind of informed your um, your sense of of self and uh, and and identity? Actually, Carmen, I can't really remember much of my days in the refugee camp just because I was so young. Mm -hmm. And it was actually not until later on in my life, until my early teenage years, where I became more interested in where I came from and what my path mm -hmm. was, that I decided to backtrack and find out what my own story was. And I think it was that um, in intuition or that yearning for understanding of my own path is where I got the impetus to tell stories and wanted to know how others became who they are today. And, and, you know, reading biographies and understanding other people's lives is what I've always been very interested in. And I think that's um, what got me started in terms of telling stories and, and sharing with the world what others have gone through in order to get to where they are. 
Well, give, give me a give me an example of where you you think that um, that love of storytelling kind of really clicked when the elements came together for you, and you thought, you know what, I really want to participate and um, and be a part of making something instead of just reading or watching what other people make. I think again, it was it was that moment of of coming to the realization, hey, this is where I came from, and it's not mm-hmm. the same as. Joe or John that lives down the street from me where I grew up in, I, I felt that I was very different from others. Um, aside from the fact that I am an Asian Canadian living in Canada, I look different. I eat different food. I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't speak the same language. And here I am in Canada. So it was that realization that, you know, we're all so much different, yet we are so much alike in terms of, of, of humanity. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, that's where I, it really piqued my interest in terms of telling the stories for other people. When you, when you grew up, did your parents talk to you about life in Cambodia before the Pol Pot regime? Did they, did they talk to you about the, the times when they, when they were slaves? I don't think they talked to me in terms of, you know, sitting me down and getting me to understand. There was never a moment mm-hmm. like that at all. It was, I think it was a lot of reminiscence. A lot of hearing them reminiscing about what the days were like back when they were young. And I would just sit there and hear about them talking about, you know, the food they eat or their aunt or uncle that they would visit during New Year's or or whatever Mm -hmm. the festivity may be. And I would just hear about it and it would just always pique my interest to find out more about what had happened. Did it, did it become almost like this uh, kind of family myth, um, <clears throat> this thing that you could you could see but was fuzzy around the edges that you really wanted to dive in and understand better? It was. And I think my parents had really uh, walked a fine line in terms of, you know, educating me about my past and also making sure that I had assimilated into the society where I am in Canada. Yeah. And it's important, right? I mean, I think for, for them to be without a home for so so long, they really wanted you to feel like you fit in. Yes, exactly. And, you know, when I was younger, I was I, I was embarrassed. You know, I was embarrassed to mm-hmm. to bring rice and chicken to lunch in the in the lunchroom. You know, all I wanted mm-hmm. was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich like all the other kids had, you know, and I, I was truly embarrassed to have fried rice. And mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I just uh I couldn't sit in the lunchroom and eat with the other kids. I would actually go and eat somewhere alone so I can, you know, I didn't want to be different. That's, I mean, that's a hard thing for a kid, right? Um, you know, I, I've had that experience too, where you've, you've got this different um, home life than what a lot of other people experience. And when you open that up, it, it makes you vulnerable. So how how do you how do you look at that now when you see people that might have that um, shyness or um, or discomfort? Um, have you ever have you ever seen somebody like that and stepped in to talk to them about it? You know, I have I have not, um, but I, I think it's it's a bit different now, or I I hope it is, um, mm-hmm. where you know again having something like rice for lunch is more normal, whereas back in the early or late eighties where it was looked, it was frowned upon because you're different. I feel like the world has changed a lot now where, you know, I I have cousins, little cousins that do get rice and chicken for lunch and they bring it to their lunchroom and they eat it with the other kids and they all enjoy it the same way. So 
I think it's different. I've not had a, a moment where I would step in and, and, and educate per se, but I have spoken to my younger cousins and have told them the story that I'm actually telling you now. And they always just get a good laugh at it. And they say, you know, Ron, that's, that's ridiculous. You know, that's mm-hmm. everybody brings lunch, uh, bring rice for lunch now. So it's cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, my, my, I had that experience and when my kids were growing up, um, you know, we, we intentionally exposed them to as many different types of cuisine as possible. And um, my kid went in, in kindergarten and they were showing pictures of things and said, what does this look like? What does that look like? And my kid said, oh, that looks like cucumber sushi. And there was not another kid that knew what sushi was. And he felt embarrassed about it, you know, because he didn't, he didn't know that no one else knew that. Um, or was exposed to that. And you, you know, kids don't talk about that. They kind of internalize it. Um, but then it, it, I think it does help them understand that there's a much bigger world. So when did, when as a child, did you, did you say, you know what, I want to, I want to know more about the world. I want to see more. When was the first time you even got on an airplane that you can remember? Oh, wow. Um, I think my first flight was um, in 2000 when I went to Cambodia for the first time. And what was that like? I was actually in college at this point. Um, I I just uh, started film school. And during the first year of film school, we had an assignment to tell a story in the form of a documentary. And all my other classmates were doing stories about the tattoo parlor down the road or the lady that's bagging groceries at the nearby grocery store. And when it came to me, I put up my hand and I said, I really want to tell this story about a family uh, from Cambodia going back to Cambodia and reuniting for the first time after 25 years after the war. And the whole room just went silent. And my, <laughs> my professor just looked at me and was like, where did you come from? Like, where do you get this from? And I literally stood up and told the story as uh, told my story and, and told them, you know, this is what I want to do. And, you know, and I, I made a very short documentary, a, a five minute documentary about my own story. And it had actually won best short documentary that year as a first year film, film student. And, uh, that was the impetus for us to do the full, uh, 45 minute documentary of my whole family going back. Um, so, you know, I, I had student loans and, and all kinds of debt going to school. And here I am wanting to tell a story on the other side of the world. Um, I didn't have a camera, so teachers would lend me their cameras. Manufacturers would, you know, donate tape stock and batteries and whatnot, just so I could tell the story. And we had even gotten airlines to, you know, donate or discount some of the fares so that we could get to our destination to tell the story. So that was my first time getting on the plane and uh, it was all documented in the documentary. So what gives you the courage or the foresight to put something like that in motion? Where'd you get that confidence? I think it's that, I think it's that yearning to find the thread in the story, Carmen. And it's Mm -hmm. that, that, notion of 
uncovering something or peeling something back so you can understand something better. Um, you know, and, and actually standing up to say, Hey, I'm different and it's okay. And when I speak and tell somebody of how I am different, people actually listen. And that gives me the confidence that maybe it's something worth telling and maybe it's something worth pursuing. When the doc, when the 45 minute documentary came out, how did your parents respond? My parents till this day don't really understand what I do for a living. So if, if you backtrack, um, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, almost to the, to when I was in film school and I'm telling them that I'm bringing my Canadian friend, my white friend, Steve, along with us on this first trip back to Cambodia and our family reunion. And Steve is going to help me document this story. They just thought, you know, I'm bringing my, my college friend for the family trip. They didn't think anything of it. Uh, you know, and, and Steve is sticking his camera in front of everybody's face for literally a month while we were there and filming every little uh, every little bit of the trip. And they didn't think anything of it. They just thought they were filming a home video. And I think that shows in the film and it's just their natural way of, of who they are. And they just thought we were just documenting the, the, the trip in a home video. And I would just come home and make a put some music to it and a title and that would be it. They, they had no idea that we had developed this entire 45-minute film. It wasn't until it aired where they understood that this is the full story. How did they respond when it aired? I think it was more a prof- pr- it was a proud moment for them. Yet, mm-hmm. you know, honestly, as Cambodian parents, they they would never show it. They would never voice how proud they are to me directly. But I could mm. tell by how they shared it with their friends. You know, they would send back then it was VHS tapes. They would send mm. the VHS tapes to their friends and and make copies and share share it with every member of their congregation at the temple. And I, I think that wow. for me was how um, it showed to me that they were proud. So when you when you do something like that right out of the gate, that is personal and is um, kind of. Um, bold how do you how do you then translate that into a career what what drove you and and where did you get your your toehold into um into really telling stories for the the wide world you know i I never knew where i would fit in in this industry I, i never knew whether i would become a cinematographer or whether i become an editor sitting behind the editing desk or whether I would be, heck, even in front of the camera. I never knew uh, where I wanted to go and where I would be accepted in the industry. So when 9-11 happened, um, I was just on the cusp of finishing film school. And again, I didn't want to have parents say, hey, Ron, my son went to film school and now he's jobless. Now he doesn't have a job. So when 9-11 happened, I had I was working for um, Canadian Broadcasting as one of their cameramen. And I got an email asking if anybody was interested in going to Afghanistan to document the war effort and embedding with Canadian troops. So <laughs> I put up my hand and I went. I went to Afghanistan for the first time and uh, just just so I can say to my parents that I had a job. 
<laughs> okay. I mean, that's a that's a heck of a uh, of a first professional gig like that. What was the experience like? Um, you know, a lot of people go through a fake it till you make it, but they don't do it under fire. There is a lot of fake it until you make it, you know, and in many ways, um, it the whole experience actually backfired on me because I, I had went there to prove to my parents that I did have a job, yet at the same time, my parents were not supportive of that because they had escaped the war, and here I am sure. going to war to tell a story. So they were not supportive of that at all. Um but while I was there, you know, you clearly start to understand and see humanity and life in a whole new perspective. Yeah, but you you also had the added benefit of knowing that you, you know, these are people that are becoming refugees. You know, these are people being right. driven out of their of their homes. And and you had the the experience and you could see what it was like on the other side of that transition. Did that change the, or do you think that it changed the way you, you saw them? Did you see a piece of yourself in their experiences while you were witnessing it? I did. I did, Carmen. And, you know, it's a bit of selfishness as well because I'm in, in, in a way I'm still finding who I am in the midst of this war zone and understanding who I am yet trying to understand the situation that others are in and tell the story and beam those images back to everyone here in their living rooms. And you, you start to understand that, you know, this is what my parents had gone through. This is what I had gone through to some extent, um, except, I mean, maybe in a different uh, way, but nonetheless, we are survivors of war. And I think that had an impact on how, I worked in the in the field and how I interacted with my fellow coworkers and how I decided to shoot what I wanted to shoot and not shoot what I wanted to show. Tell me more about that. Tell me tell me where that tension came from in terms of shooting what you wanted to shoot um and and making decisions in the field. You know there there's that you know, when you think of Africa, for example, you many people think of that image of um, a, a skinny child to the bone with flies hovering around the body. Mm-hmm. And th- those are the images that I didn't want to show in a war zone. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to show people shooting at each other per se. It had to have a, it had to show some kind of meaning. You know why. Why are they running or why are they going in a certain direction? It wasn't just showing an explosion just for the sake of seeing something exploded. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if there, if there was a school that was, um, if there was a school that went down because of mortar fire or a wall broken apart, you know, I didn't want to show that, I didn't want to show just a school being torn down. It, it had to have children you know, walking around or, or someone being there to show that there's a scale of humanity involved in all this destruction. I, I think that that phrase scale of humanity is it's, it's so important. You know, the, I always talk about the, the importance of context rather than content, 
right? You can be inundated with content, but somebody right. who can set the context, you know, the human context that these are, these are people's lives and people are resilient and they're creative and they, they have a sense of community and empathy, probably more so in dire situations than in kind of commonplace everyday life. Where did you get the wisdom to, to think that way? And, and, and actually the courage to, to push for that when you were so junior. I think I never thought of it as wisdom or I never thought of it as, uh, as something that was different in terms of how I shot. For me, it was, again, going back to being selfish was, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to show, uh, a building without putting humans there. Uh, there had to be that human connection. There had to be that interaction between this building and these people to, again, show the resiliency, to show the power of the human spirit, to show that, you know, they are suffering, yet they are looking to the camera and they are talking to you in the living room. Um, it, it had to have that connection. And I, I think I had a lot of support um, through my mentors. Uh, one of my mentors was, uh, Peter Kent, who was also a war photographer and covered a lot of Cambodia during the war and the Vietnam War. Uh, so I had a lot of mentors going into this and I would sit and listen to their stories and I would try to learn and not necessarily learn about how to shoot, but I would listen to their stories and learn what to avoid and and, and how it has affect them and how these stories actually hurt them as they grew older, you know, it's, it's very hard to explain. Um, but I kept putting myself in their shoes when I'm their age and how would I tell my story to my children later on? And I think that actually helped determine how I shot when I was there. Well, let me ask you a different question and maybe, maybe kind of in the same, in the same wheelhouse, but, um, are you a pain in the ass to work with? Are you, uh, are you meticulous? Are you opinionated? Do you have uh, do you have a position that you push really hard when you do your work? I am very opinionated, and I am a pain in the ass to work with. Um, <laughs> I will admit that. However, um, I'm one of those guys when I'm on set and I go to grab a drink, I will ask everybody on set for a drink and have that respect mm -hmm. that I ask from everyone else the same way. Um, I, I think when I'm on set, I, I make sure I remember everybody's name and I call everybody by their, their names. And to me, that's very important. Um, whether you're a production assistant that's, you know, assigned to me to get me my drinks, I will get you his or her drink as well uh, in, in that way. So um, I, I'm very opinionated. And whenever I have an image or a, a visual or a creative that I want to push, I will push for it and I will push the team to our limits until we get it. Um, however, uh, I do have a profound understanding of the human spirit. And I think when you have that understanding and when you respect each other, um, I think everybody's willing to push the same way. Well, I think that that was my point is that, you know, when you, when you have standards and you have a point of view, you, you tend to want to commit to that, but you also want to be surrounded by people that way, you know, people who do the same. So what's the benefit of working with passionate, opinionated people? 
I think it's the drive and it's the it's the notion that they're pushing you as much as you're pushing them. And together you're going to achieve that that image or that creative that you've put together. So, uh, you know, it's it's like a marriage. You know, you want somebody to not be just like you, but someone who can make you better. And having a team that can make you better and you making them better at the same time is is absolutely priceless. Well, yeah, that and and that's kind of what I what I wanted to impress on people is that your your different background coupled with other people's different backgrounds. When you share a passion, you're really putting on display such a, a wide range of experiences. And that's gotta be um it's gotta be one of the driving forces behind your your cinematography and the way you want to kind of capture the world around you. It is. Um I think finding that voice and sticking to that voice. Um, you, you know, when I first signed with an agent in Los Angeles, I remember telling him, Hey, there are guys that are shooting this style, this style and various styles that I've never shot before, but it's in. And I'm worried that mm-hmm. I won't fit in because I don't know how to shoot mm-hmm. that style. And the best advice he'd ever given to me at that point was who cares? Who cares what they're mm-hmm. shooting in LA? Who cares what they're shooting in Shanghai? Or, you know, if that camera style is shaky or whatever it may be, you make your own style and you create your own following. And that's what I, I've always lived with. And, you know, if, if I, I can't make everybody happy yet, there are the few that I, I can. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that I, I've noticed about your work is I can, I can see when it's your work. You know, there's a there's a style to it. There's a substance to it, um, and I I love the idea that um, you know you you're not shy about saying uh, this is my point of view. You know, I I think that more people when they start out try to mimic other people, and slowly maybe that falls away. You know, if you you listen to the Beatles song "Come Together," it's essentially um, it's a it's a Chuck Berry song. It's the chord progressions of a Chuck Berry song done backwards. Mm. You know, Lennon thought everybody would know that <laughs> he would be found out. Right? <laughs> no, nobody noticed. Um, but I think that the the idea there to say uh, I'm going to work in a in a common medium, but I'm going to do it my way. Um, doesn't that in a way kind of highlight who you are and your experience? I think it does, Carmen. And I'm very blessed and thankful that I, I am given that opportunity. Um, you know, again, it's going back to the lunchroom. You know, I'm going to bring fried mm-hmm. rice with chicken and fish sauce, and I'm going to enjoy my meal until someone asks me what I'm eating and they'll want some of it. And that's, that, is a, that is a great way to to approach life. Um, you know, you're not the first person I've known who spent time in Afghanistan. Um, and, and one of the things that I I keep hearing over and over for people who live, um, with people who are refugees or who have been refugees is that for a long time, they feel, um, awkward about their experiences. They feel, um, almost like they want to, to hide them. Um, but the reality is that that background is actually something that the world wants to understand, right? They want to, a lot of people in the world want to hear about those experiences. So 
what did you learn in some total, you know, traveling around the world and covering crises that maybe people aren't familiar with or don't realize? Uh, I think going back to that notion that you mentioned about, you know, being embarrassed about your story. Um, uh, For a long time, I was embarrassed. I was uh, honestly, Parman, when people used to ask me as a kid where where I came from, I would say I came from China. Because I didn't, a lot of people didn't know where Cambodia was on a map, and but everybody knew that, you know, knew who Chinese people were. So I would tell kids in my class that I'm from China because it was so much easier to explain, and that really, I, really affected me. And I hated that notion. I hated telling people that I was from China because it's not me. And when I had that opportunity to finally tell someone who I'm, who I am, and where I'm from, I I took that opportunity, and I never looked back. Well, I think that's, you know, I, I think that's the piece that, you, you know, you, you carry scars. Some of them are visible, some of them aren't, you know, from trauma. And whether you were conscious of it or not, um, it seems like it stayed with you until you took control of it. And when I was a kid, um, I had a friend who was Vietnamese and he had been burned as a child. He had scars and he wouldn't talk about them. He would just say, oh, that was from before, before I came to the US. And, you know, his his friends just became very protective of that. You know, don't let other people ask him all these ignorant questions. How do you how do you see that playing out in the world now? Do you see people becoming more tolerant? Do you see them becoming less tolerant? Is there a shift going on here? I think there is a shift, and uh, I for the for the better, um, and I think that involves educating our kids at a very early age that there are people that suffer in refugee camps, there are people that are surviving through war zones, and getting our young to not even just understand, but even just accepting and wanting to understand is a huge step in seeing mm-hmm. that. Um, that new shift. And I think that's very important. You know, I'm, I'm going to, uh, I generally don't like to do this, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell this quick little story because it's, um, I think it's indicative of what you talked about. About seven years ago, I was, I was doing some work with the Clinton initiative and I happened to be backstage and, uh, and Bill Clinton was on stage, came back afterwards and asked how he did to a bunch of people in the room. And they wound up getting into a conversation with him about refugees and refugee housing. And his comment was, the, the fact of the matter is that there's going to be more refugees there are right now than in any time since World War II. And these camps are not homes. They're not built to be homes. They're not designed to be neighborhoods. They don't have the services. They don't have a, a structure the way they need to. And so people suffer for no other reason other than we we haven't planned better places for these people so they can assimilate into cultures. And the story that he told, he said, what needs to happen is what happened with the AIDS medicine in Africa. And he said, he and Mandela, along with, I think, the, uh, the president of Trinidad and Tobago, I don't know why, but those were the three, got together and went to the pharmaceutical companies and said, how much medicine do you need to put into production for you to switch over your lines and make AIDS medicine? And they gave him a number. 
it was a hundred million dollar market they needed. And so they went hat in hand to every country in Africa and they added up how much they would spend on AIDS medicine. And they came back to the pharma companies and said, well, we have pre-orders of a hundred million dollars. Will you switch now? And they did. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you know, he told that story to four people. And it stayed with me because I worked for a construction company and we were never able to pull that off. We were never able to do that. But that's what you're talking about, right? I mean, we treat refugee camps as this temporary place that becomes permanent. That Doesn't that impact people when they're in a temporary place, but the nature of the time there is way beyond temporary? It's it's very haunting, uh, and, and haunting and daunting at the same time. Um, you know, I, I I wish sometimes when I look back, I wish our situation was better. However, I also acknowledge and accept that I am who I am because of mm. the situation that I was in. So I I don't live with regret, nor I nor do I live with uh, contemplation in terms of what could have or would have. Mm-hmm. However, I think in telling stories and getting people to understand, maybe the next refugee camp could be different. Maybe there will be more water. Maybe there will be more food. Maybe there will be mm-hmm. a faster process to get people immigrated to other countries. And and we can only hope. Give me, give me a feel for you know, because you've been to so many different places and because you've been in places that were both, you know, incredibly disrupted um, by human um, conflict at the, and then at the same time, you've been to places that have been devastated by storms and flooding. What's, what's different and what's unique between the two of them, between um, a man-made crisis and, a, and one that happens from nature? Or are they the same or, or in some way interrelated, do you think? I, I can't really put um, a measurement in terms of suffering because suffering, no matter what the situation is, is very hard um, mm-hmm. to comprehend. However, when I covered Afghanistan, it was more of me covering the story of the people and what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And when I'm covering, for example, the earthquake in Haiti, again, it's me covering the story of the people, mm-hmm. the earthquake is secondary and the war again mm-hmm. is secondary as well in both stories. Um, when, when you put that f- focus on the people, it, it makes it easier for me to tell the story. You're the first person that's articulated that to me. And I, and I, I know that, um, is true from the mechanics of working with people writing those stories. And, you know, I've, I've talked to people who said, you know, I don't care about the, the underpinnings of the conflict. I'm dealing with what's happening to the people there. Or, um, you know, a natural disaster may, may seem to be unpredictable, but the circumstances that leave that community devastated in a way that maybe they wouldn't be if it was in, you know, the Midwest, um, those things stay long after the cameras turn off and go away. Right. So let me ask you a different question that's in the, in the same area, because we talk about allies um, and we talk about the, the way that we do things for other people or in the service of other people. And a lot of what you're doing is exactly that. 
What's a story that you didn't tell that you wish you could have? Wow. And maybe since I, I might have stumped you, I'm going to give you one from, from me. You know, we both have a friend, Alan Friedlander. And um, I was in China with Alan and he was setting up a shot outside of a, a temple. And it was a temple that we had um, we had had some role in, in helping to restore, I believe. Um, and so we just wanted to kind of capture some of the, the things that the company we worked for had, uh, had done there. But in... <laughs> As we were looking to do that and getting through security and the the guards that were there didn't want us to have cameras on, et cetera, I stood there and watched just a Sunday afternoon. And I watched these little kids playing. And I knew I wasn't going to catch this story, but but the mannerisms and the roles that the kids were playing were so stereotypical um, of just kids. They, it didn't matter what country you were in. It didn't matter that I didn't speak their language. You could tell what they were doing. And I thought that was a more important story to tell in the world than whether this coding we put on a mural worked or not, um, because it was so universal. And I haven't seen that story told that way. Um, but there have got to been times when you said, if I had enough time or if I had the opportunity to go here, um, I wish I could have done that. Anywhere in particular? You know, go, going back to Afghanistan, Carmen, I was um, – I was working with Anderson Cooper and we spent the entire day filming soldiers giving books to students and building this school for this very tiny village. And I got all my footage and we shot everything that we needed to tell this story. It's a very heartwarming story. We came back to the green zone where all the reporters had, were living, were staying. And as we entered, everybody was, I noticed that everyone was running like their, their chicken with a head cut off and trying to get access to satellites and getting beaming new footage back to New York saying that Afghanistan had exploded. Mm-hmm. And I looked at Anderson, I'm like, you know what? I don't know what the heck they're talking about because the whole country did not explode. Mm-hmm. And we made an editorial decision that that was the story we we're going to stick to tonight. And I'm thankful mm. that we did because not, what? I mean, every other network reported that Afghanistan had exploded that day. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of, um, that's Cooper's reputation too, right? I mean, he, he really became who he was during Katrina when he called out kind of the sensationalism and he called out the hypocrisy and he said, you know, I'm standing here next to these people telling their human story, not your propaganda story or not, um, you know, the, the story that looks good on paper. Um, that's gotta be a pretty, um, seminal moment for you to stand by somebody who's, you know, maybe a little bit more experienced than you and, uh, and agree. It's got to validate who you are or, or how you see the world when somebody else does that with you. It really did. And it left a, a very lasting mark in terms of who I am and who I will become in term, uh, as a storyteller. Um, you know, there, there are so many stories that you want to tell when you're out in the field. And my biggest fear in life is that one day I will forget them all. And I'm, I, I'm already starting to forget. Um, you know, it's the stories of, of me meeting the, the young boy in Honduras with a prosthesis 
but he wants to be a soccer player. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, that story of me meeting um, this uh, little girl in a hospital in Baghdad where um, she couldn't find her parents and you're standing there wondering whether her parents would actually come back to get her or, and find her. You know, for me, it's those kind of stories that I never got to told. And I don't really get a chance to tell many people verbally even um, what I've seen and what I wonder still to this day. And those are the stories that keep me up at night sometimes. Um, but uh, I, I don't usually have a channel where I can tell these stories. And But those are the stories that I keep within me. Well, I mean, that's that's what happens when you get older, right? <laughs> you, uh, you, 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 tra- you, you go from the person who does and does and does and does, you know, what somebody said is, uh, it's a human doing. And then there's a point at which you have to step back and you become this human being, you know, somebody who's looking at other people and saying, well, what can I pass along? What, what wisdom do I have? And I noticed you kind of made that transition pretty interesting in your career. You know, you can, you can chart the, the video stringer job to going into corporate and doing some, you know, creative director work and cinematography. Um, and, and then, um, you're at the stage now where you've established yourself, you know, people know who you are and they know what you do. Uh, and then you dipped into, well, now I'm going to get involved in, um, technology and, and kind of, uh, help other people tell their stories better or differently. What led you along that progression? Because, you know, to a certain extent, um, although some people continue to do it, um, being a stringer reporter or being a combat reporter is, tends to be a younger person's game. Um, but, but where did you get the confidence to, to shift and do something different and then do something different again and something different again? You know, it's, again, going back to that, where do I fit in in this industry? Where do I fit in in this artistic world and this uh, you know, showbiz world that I'm in? And... You know, when I first started shooting in film school, going back to my early days, I, I didn't have, I didn't have the most expensive cameras, and I didn't have all the gear that I always wanted. So I would go to the Goodwill and the thrift shops and find mm-hmm. these very old cameras and these very old lenses, and I would make them work. I would adapt the lenses in my dorm room at night so that it would finally fit onto the camera that I had, and I would <laughs> shoot with it. And for years in film school, because I was poor, because I came from a background that didn't have much, I was able to make it work. Mm-hmm. I kept shooting and I kept shooting. And even after graduation, I you know, had more money. I could buy lenses now and I could buy more gear, but I didn't. I, I always went back to the, the cheap ones that I got from the Goodwill that I adapted to make work. Mm-hmm. I kept shooting with them and I started winning awards. And people kept asking me, Ron, what did you use? And again, going back to that kid in the lunchroom, I was embarrassed. <laughs> I, mean, I was embarrassed to tell people I used this cheap $40 lens that I got from yeah. Will and mm-hmm. adapted it to work on this camera. And I was so scared to tell people until eventually I finally did. I kept asking. Yeah. And I said, dude, I got a $30 lens and I, that's what I shot it on. And it had this very cool vintage look and everybody mm-hmm. wanted it. Everybody wanted the, the same look. And I'm like, are you guys nuts? Is, this is crazy. And just by, by happenstance, 
everybody started to want me to adapt their lenses like I did when I was in college. And that's how I got started. So yeah, it, 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 that is hysterical to me, but, but not unsurprising. And it happens over and over again, especially with people in a visual medium. You know, they don't, they don't look at Van Gogh and say, boy, he really, must've really had good paint. Mm. Or they don't look at, you know, uh, Faulkner and say, I bet he had a really good pen. And yet <laughs> they always look at a photographer and say, we well, must have a really nice camera. Um, but what you're doing really is, is pleasing and aesthetic, right? I mean, yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, but, um, you know, JJ Abrams is shooting digital and putting, um, you know, camera lens flares. Mm-hmm. He's CGIing <laughs> camera lens flares because he wants to, he wants it to look like he shot it with probably the stuff that you're shooting it with. Right. Um, there's gotta be something in there. There's gotta be something supremely satisfying about your frugality paying off in your art. It's a bit of redemption, Carmen. It's, um, yeah. you know, it feels great that I'm able to contribute back into the industry that has given me so much. And mm-hmm. I get I get emails from college students all the time now. You know, Ron, can I get a discount? And I would just send them free stuff. And, you know, Ron, what do you recommend here and there? And I would always call them back and, and reply to their emails. And it just feels really good that, you know, the entertainment industry is not only for the rich and the elite and the wealthy. It, mm-hmm. I didn't come from that background. And I'm just so happy to see others able to enter the industry that I'm in and succeed by not having to worry about how much they have in their bank account or what camera they're shooting with. Uh, yeah, but you've, you've, you're doing something more than that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of put a little uh, damper on the fact that you're just talking about money. What it seems to me that you do that other people don't do is that you you take a lot of who you are and you apply it to the process of creating this art. So the filters that you're putting on the lenses are nowhere near as valuable as the filter of you that you put on your craft. And that is a hard lesson to teach people. I remember I had an article when I worked at Sotheby's. I had to I had to get an article that was going to be read by people around the world uh, about the Hamptons, and I was going. I was trying to steal a lead, an opening line, and I saw this um, advertisement for helicopters in this very expensive magazine. This uh, magazine that went to really rich people uh, because Sotheby's sells you know multi million dollar homes, and it was about the shuttle service. So I opened up the article. You know, the Hamptons, a short helicopter ride away from Manhattan. And that article became a feature article <laughs> because I, I stole the lead. In my mind, I just took it and I stole it from this ad. It didn't say the same thing, but, um, but the concept was there. No one knew. But I learned to me that you know, it was okay to, to look around and understand and not be intimidated by a blank sheet of paper. And I think what I see with you is that the ability to throw yourself into the mix and sort it while you're there is such a huge personal skill. Do, do you teach that? Do you talk to students about that? You know, putting yourself in the mix. Don't worry about having it all figured out. Kind of adapting to change as happens. I actually like to tell people not to worry 
And, you know, it's okay not to know where you're going to be five years from now. And it's okay not to know what you want to be and just live it out and survive because that's what I did. And there's, there's always going to be a light and there's always going to be a path for you to take as long as you keep moving. Um, you know, <laughs> but doesn't that make for a better story though? I'm sorry. <laughs> doesn't that make for a better story? It does too. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's all, it's all in, in everything coming full circle. I truly believe in that. And, you know, meeting the right people and time is essence and, and you know, figuring, figuring out a way in the worst times by, you know, just being who you are and, and, you know, being there for others as well. It's very important. Well, and I, and I think it's okay to fail, right? I mean, uh, I'll, I'll give you one example of a, of a great failure of mine and, uh, and it, it taught me something, taught me something really important. Um, I had to, I was a consultant and I had a 55 page report on the future of public affairs for, um, the state of New Jersey. And it was going to a very large company. And on the cover page, I dropped the L in public. So <laughs> now look, I can contend that more people read that report <laughs> and that may be true. Um, but that lesson to me, to even, even when it's all final and done, read it one more time. Um, stayed with me and it was an it was a supreme embarrassment to me um can you give me an example of when you made a mistake and it stayed with you and you're like oh yep that one i'm never going to do that again when i was younger i used to um knock on everyone's door and make phone calls to i don't care if you were the president of the corporation or the janitor i if i needed to talk to you for advice i would and i remember in film school i um i needed I wanted to get my documentary sold and aired even before I shot. Mm -hmm. So I went to, I emailed the president of TV Ontario, which is a very big broadcaster here in, in Canada. And I requested a meeting. And after about 20 emails and so many phone calls, I finally scored the meeting. And he sat me down. He's like, I got 10 minutes, Ron. What are you, what are you doing? So I told him the story of what I wanted to tell. And he looked at me and he said, who the hell wants to hear that story? And I was just floored. I did not know what to say to him. I literally left that meeting feeling like I was such a failure. And it took me a long time to pick myself off the ground and, and keep going. But that was an awakening. And that's the, I remember it to this day, and I never forgot that feeling. And it to me, it, it that failure becomes an inspiration. Now it inspires me to keep going. Well, and I and I think that the the wisdom of of you know you <clears throat> is not to have that shut you down. And you know, like you, I I just picked up the phone and kept calling people for jobs. I just wanted a job. Give me an interview. Give me an interview. And it took forever. And I got so many no's. And I, and, and that idea of, of grit, you know, when a guy like that, finally you get into the office and then he tries to shut you down, um, makes you want to go back later on, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it does. You know what, in a way, Carmen, I kind of want to offer that same lesson 
to someone else, sort of, sort of to pass it on, to teach that same mentality. I just don't know if it'll um, be transferred the same way. I think it does. I, I, I found that um, telling people, you know, I have, I do not have a typical career path, you know, with uh, my background of mm-hmm. communications person that never had a communications course and master's in literature. So, you know, I have no right doing the things that I've done, except that I kept trying to get myself into rooms where normally somebody like me wasn't. And it, it became um, almost like a game, an interest. And, you know, again, our friend Alan and I do that. We like to touch old objects. <laughs> so, so we're forever like trying to scam, you know, can I hold that base? Can I touch the Terracotta Warrior? Yes, they let us do that. Um, and that grit to keep trying, to keep going, that's the thing I find that kids now, kids, adults, um, in a crisis like this, in a pandemic, so many people out of work, so many people struggling to get by, kids graduating from high school or college or wherever and not being able to find a job, I think they want to know that other people have had to persevere. So I'm going to – usually at the last the last 10 minutes, I ask just two questions and I'm going to throw them out to you. Um, and they're pretty simple, but uh, in this context of COVID, of the world having this giant inflection point – the first question is, so what? What does this mean that this is happening right now in terms of storytelling, in terms of people's perspective? What do you see in terms of this monumental, universal experience of living through COVID? What do you think the impact is? I think we're all going to be stronger after this. Um, I, I know it's cliche to say, but we've gone through worse. I mean, when I when I really think about it, you know, 50 years ago, during Christmas, there was a world war, and we could be mm-hmm. fighting in a trench right now. Yeah. Yet here we are sitting in our living rooms watching Netflix and eating popcorn, <laughs> and we're complaining that we can't go outside. Big deal. Yeah. You know, I've, I grew up in a refugee camp without water. Mm-hmm. Here I am in quarantine drinking Perrier if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we all just have to sit back and reflect upon what we have and be thankful. And we're just going to get through what we need to get through because that's how a lot of people in the world have lived with COVID or not. They just got to do what they have to do to get through and see till tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, that's the part that I was, I was listening to somebody um, in a, in a zoom call who was from Uganda and she said, you know, we're, we're weathering the initial phases of this crisis maybe better than others because we have a tribe mentality. We're used to coming together for the greater good and making sacrifices. And by the way, we're also used to uh, pandemics. <laughs> so we get, we get a bit of a leg up on that one. Yeah. Um, what she said, though, was that the danger is in the long run that people forget and that they, they don't commit to the next level of investment in Uganda. You know, once the crisis is over, they figure, well, they weren't as hit hard. We can stop worrying about them. <laughs> so that's kind of where I get to the next question is now what? What happens after that? After we survive and we're starting to think of how to go back to thrive, what advice would you give? You've been in places that have been monumentally disrupted. You know, you've been in, in places where the, the culture has collapsed, the society has collapsed. <laughs> what lessons can you give? T- around 
how things are rebuilt or how things are restored? Or are they ever restored or do they just become something different? I think maintaining that human connection is very important and so vital to how we interact and how we move beyond COVID. Um, you know, to this day, my favorite people that I always keep in touch with are my drivers, whether <laughs> that Ukrainian driver that I had in Afghanistan or that a driver that drove me through Indonesia right after the tsunami. I always remember who they are because I entrusted them with my life uh, to get me from point A to point B. And I think that after every major incident, every major ordeal, remembering who helped you to get over it, remembering who supported you during your time of need, and not even just, just pass it on. Keep passing it on. You know, after this whole COVID thing is done, keep passing it on. And I think we're all going to be for the better. Yeah, I mean, that's, th- that is probably the, the best universal advice I've heard. You know, I just saw there was, uh, I think it was 900 people that, you know, paid it forward at a um, Dunkin' Donuts. Mm. <laughs> going through the drive-thru and they're paying it forward and they're paying it forward. What I want to know is who was that prick who was 901? <laughs> who just said, nope, I'm taking it and going on. Because that one, I want to know what was going on in that person's life. Yeah, they just shut it down. Because somebody had to tell them, are you sure? There's 900 people. Nah, I'm good. Mm. But <laughs> you do see that. Um, but but I think that the the thing that that you bring to this that I think is so fundamental to who you are is that commitment to a always the human story, always the face of the story. And I, and I do find that the sensationalism takes away from the humanity. And the reason why I'm doing an hour long podcast and not a 20 minute podcast is exactly for that. I want to hear the detail and I want to hear the, the kind of the depth behind the headline. Um, do you think it's going to, that we're going to ramp back up to that level of speed or is there an opportunity to slow things down a little bit? Is there more, going to be more room for the deeper stories maybe that you're attracted to or that I'm attracted to? I think there will be, Carmen. I think there will be more of an understanding now of the fact that we've had time to sit and reflect. And when you sit and reflect, you at the same time find answers, but at the same time, you also want to learn more. And I'm hoping and praying that we all want to learn more about each other once we, you know, I mean, you're talking to me right now and there's a pandemic outside. I'm hoping the next time we talk, it'll be two hours just because we can just talk about mm-hmm. anything else, you know? And, and I think that that yearning for understanding is even greater now that we've had that chance to learn just a little bit more about each other. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm, and I'm going to, I want to bring up something about the, um, I know you you do some volunteering at a Buddhist temple and, um, and there are times when it's so important to, to go to those places, you know, those communal places because of that, because, you know, in, in, in isolation, you, you know, the, the purpose of, of, of people, I think Ian Forster said this is, is to connect. Um, 
why why is it important for you to be involved in the temple? And and what does that bring to you that you think maybe um, other people may not understand or, or or know off the top of their head? Again, it's that notion of passing it forward. Um, it's that that notion of doing something for the better good to uh, you know just to make you feel more connected with the community. Um, and that's why I get involved. Uh, and it, it's not even just a religious thing. It could be something as simple as giving bread to your neighbor or, or you know, sharing a meal with somebody you don't know or whatever it may be. Um, it's that notion of staying connected and understanding that, you know, there are people that have bad days. And, you know, that guy that broke the chain at Dunkin' Donuts, maybe he was having a bad day, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I get involved because it's to understand and it's to forgive and to learn. And that's so important to me is to forgive and learn. Well, I, I can't I can't think of a better way to to end. Um, that is a a very human and positive um, prescription for what we're going through. Um, you know, to forgive and learn. Uh, and and I want to thank you, Ron, because I not just for this interview, which was great, but before uh, the delight I have whenever I see something with your name on it, uh, I, I really just. It's one of those things where I stop. I'm not going to watch it half-assed. I'm going to pay attention because I know what's going to come, whether it's how you shoot rain or how you shoot kids, you know, and I see there the joy on their faces and the, and just the richness of what you do. So I wanted to, didn't want to miss the opportunity to tell you that. So thank you so much. No, well, thank you, Carmen. Thank you. It's been such an honor and a pleasure. Well, that's all the time we have uh, with Ron. Uh, as always, if you have any additional questions of Ron or me, please send them into the Allies Podcast at allyspodcast.com. And if you have any suggestions of things we can do better or of people uh, that we should speak with, please do the same. Uh, and we will speak to you soon. Mm-hmm.